This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Welcome to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. And this past week, President Biden sent his new secretaries of state and defense to Japan and South Korea. And North Korea took advantage of that to signal an early test for Biden with its first provocation for the new president. In a terse commentary, Kim Yo-jung, the sister of North Korea's leader and recently its spokesperson on all things American, said of the Biden administration, I'm quoting, if it wants to sleep in peace for the coming four years, it had better refrain from causing a stink at its first step. What does that mean? Joining me to talk about this is Spencer Gross, an expert on the North Korean regime who is also instrumental in putting together a database for the Korea Data and History Initiative that looks at the entire history of North Korean statements and how they relate to what it actually ends up doing. And yes, we are related in a stunning bit of nepotism. He is my son, but someone I and others reach out to for expertise on this issue. Anyhow, Spencer, hi, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing today? Great. We both knew the answer to that, so let's move on. Before we even get to the statement that was released, who is Kim Yo-jong and why is she making this statement rather than her dictator brother who used to enjoy being the one to poke America in the eye? What's going on? Yeah, so Kim Yo-jong is the deputy director of the United Front Department, which is essentially the part of the North Korean regime, which is in charge of propaganda and relations with the South Koreans. She was in charge of blowing up the South Korean liaison office that was in the news uh, last year, last summer. So she's one of the many faces of North Korea when it wants to talk to South Koreans and to the United States. All right, let's get to the statement itself now, which aside from telling America not to start a stink, warns America against conducting military exercises with South Korea if it ever wants a peace deal. So is this an actual threat? Is this a prelude to new missile launches or nuclear tests or just kind of more bluster as usual? It's a bit of both uh, in this area. It seems to be a statement to the South Korean regime uh, to sort of keep in line uh, to sort of push uh, the South Koreans to be the North Koreans advocate. Uh, The South Korean president, Moon Jae-in, is in his final year in office uh, in South Korea. And so they're trying to put pressure on him to do something this year uh, to make some some movement. And then it's also a bit of a a threat to the United States as well, that uh, the North Koreans are fully prepared to be provocative again, to go back to the fire and fury of, of 2017, when there were missile tests, uh, you know, it seemed almost daily. And so it's a bit of both in that aspect. Well, the United States seems to try everything to get somewhere with North Korea. But whether it was Bush or Obama or Trump, who had three face-to-face meetings with Kim Jong-un and exchanged what almost seemed like love letters, none of this has gotten anywhere. Why is that? It's it's interesting. Each 
uh, administration gets to a certain point and then seems to hit a wall. A lot of experts think that a sort of freeze for freeze, uh, the basics of sort of what we're in now, uh, no nuclear tests, no missile tests in return for a freeze of, say, U.S. military drills, is pretty easy to get to. There's not a lot of technicality there. Uh, you don't have to get into the depths of making a nuclear bomb and the technical process that comes with that. But you run into walls pretty quickly. Uh, the Bush administration, when it came to power, tore up essentially what the Clinton administration had done uh, because the Clinton administration hadn't included uranium enrichment in the deal that they had made with the North Koreans. And they didn't want to perpetrate uh, what the Clinton administration had done. And the Obama administration uh, fell into a sort of similar repertoire of not following through on sort of the institutions that the Bush administration had put through. And when you look at the Trump administration and what it did, the Trump administration actually got uh, pretty far uh, in dealing with North Korea. Kim Jong-un seems to like the attention that he was given by meeting with uh, President Trump face to face. But the problem there goes in that neither President Trump nor Kim Jong-un have had a great grasp of the technicalities of what entails a nuclear weapons program. Uh, it's incredibly complicated. So you need people at the lower levels who are technical experts in this space to say what is feasibly possible, what can be done, what order things can be done in. Uh, you simply can't just blow up a nuclear facility for you know, pretty obvious reasons. So this is one of these situations, I mean, very often, and, and this goes back even to the walk in the woods between Reagan and Gorbachev, where lower people in administrations go, please, Mr. President, whatever party they're from and whatever side of the political fence left or right they're from, please, Mr. President, don't go into these one-to-one -one meetings unless the lower people work out some terms, some definitions and write out papers for you, whether it be Kim Jong-un or the president, now Biden, then Trump, of exactly what you're going to be talking about. Right, exactly. Especially with the nuclear program, it's it's an area that you can really accidentally uh, step in it. We, we've seen this with things like the Singapore Declaration, where, you know, they agreed, Tr President Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un agreed in Singapore to denuclearize the, the Korean Peninsula, which is something the North Koreans have agreed to in the past, uh, most notably in 1992 or 1993. But what does denuclearization mean? Does denuclearization mean the, that the United States won't protect South Korea from threats with nuclear weapons? Uh, the United States doesn't have any nuclear weapons in South Korea at the moment. Um, or does it mean that there's no nuclear power? So these are terms that can be easily agreed to at a, at a top level. And when you get into the weeds, it become very complicated. Very yeah, that seems to be what happened to the meetings and possible deal between Kim Jong-un and then-President Trump. Denuclearization to Kim Jong-un meant that not only would he abandon his nuclear weapons, but the United States would not be using nuclear weapons to defend South Korea. To President Trump, it just meant that Kim Jong-un would give up his nuclear weapons. And, and that's it. And now we have Biden's people also saying that they can get a deal in getting North Korea to lay down its nukes. Now, have they made a rookie mistake here? Have they killed any hopes of talks before they can begin? Because it seems North Korea really hates what sounds to them like a, a one-sided kind of talk. I don't think they've killed talks per se, because one of the things that you know Kim Jong-un, he is not an all-powerful dictator, uh, as much as we like to see him that way here. 
he has a political parties, you know, parts within the, the Workers Party of Korea, which is the Communist Party of Korea in North Korea. There are different power movers and he has to keep those people happy in the military, in the party, and, you know, captains of industry um, to stay in power. And the current COVID-19 restrictions, which have essentially shut the country down, have hurt the North Korean economy a lot, as have the economic sanctions that have sort of resulted from the 2017 provocations. Um, even with China not currently upholding those sanctions as much as it used to, the North Korean regime is hurting quite badly. So there's a big incentive for them to talk, but they feel with the South Korean president in his final year in office, this is really sort of the time to turn the screws and they don't want to be the ones in the negotiation to make the first move. They want sort of Washington to come in and, and put its cards on the table. And I think this is a an instance where they're trying not to blink first. Okay, so if Kim Jong-un is never going to totally abandon his nukes unless the United States abandons the possibility of using him to defend South Korea, that doesn't sound like a deal that ever gets made. What kind of deal might be possible. Yeah, so it's it's very difficult to get to a deal with complete denuclearization that's completely verifiable, where we know how many nuclear weapons were produced and and be sure that North Korea doesn't have any. But there are definitely other deals that are possible. Um, there are deals where we can dismantle the North Koreans' nuclear weapons program, limit the number of weapons that they have to what they have today. That might be possible. The other areas, too, would be to focus on the delivery systems, so deals on missiles, uh, making sure that North Korea doesn't possess, possess the sort of intercontinental ballistic missiles that are capable of reaching the United States, or even potentially, eventually, a deal that would limit the number of missiles that could reach, say, Japan. So there are intermediate types of deals. The problem is, is that North Korea wants to make sure that it doesn't give up any inch of ground it doesn't have to. So they'll want all of these types of deals to be separate. They will want a missile deal to be about missiles. They'll want a nuclear deal to be about you know, nuclear weapons. And they may even want different deals for different parts of their nuclear weapons programs. All right. It sounds like another long slog between the United States and North Korea. Spencer Gross is an expert on the North Korean regime, instrumental in putting together a database for the Korea Data and History Initiative that looks at North Korean statements and how they relate to what it actually does. And uh, once again, a nepotism alert. He's also my son. Uh, Spencer, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. At my first radio station in Decatur, Illinois, we had a contest. It was a weekend in Miami at some motel. The catch was, that's all it was. You had a place to stay. It was up to you to get there. We always wondered if the winner figured out how to get to Miami, which brings us, or rather an American astronaut, to the International Space Station. To explain that gigantic leap of storytelling, we bring in CBS News space consultant Bill Harwood. Bill, good to talk to you. How are you? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. So, NASA astronaut Mark Vanderhei is going to head to the space station next month. And since the end of the space shuttle missions, we've had this agreement with the Russians to get our astronauts up there. And indeed, he'll be going up there on a Soyuz rocket with a number of cosmonauts. But the future of this back and forth seems to be heading away from that deal and to commercial space companies. Yeah, that's right. You know, ever since uh, even before the shuttle stopped flying, NASA you know, basically uh, started a competition uh, to find companies that could build commercial crew ferry ships. In other words, commercial ships that 
NASA could essentially lease uh, to send astronauts to and from the station and end the agency's sole reliance on Russia. That was the only way to get people to station was on the Russian Soyuz spacecraft. And the Russians charged quite a bit. The, the last uh, seat that NASA bought on a Soyuz cost about $90 million. Uh, and that was Kate Rubens, an astronaut who's on board the space station right now. She launched last fall, and she used the last ticket NASA had. You know, as these commercial cruise ships come online, one's built by SpaceX, one's built by Boeing, uh, NASA's going to transition to that and use the American cruise ships to launch our astronauts to the space station. So Kate Rubens used the last seat. And now, as you say, Mark Vandehey is getting ready to take off on a Soyuz once again. So how did that happen? And, and the answer is, is a little bit convoluted. But if you think about the space station, a Soyuz crew launches on a Soyuz and comes down on a Soyuz. The American commercial ships go up and that crew is, is tied to that ship. And when it comes down, it brings that crew with it. So if you had an emergency on board the space station, say an astronaut got appendicitis or something like that, well, the entire crew that he came up with or she came up with would have to come home on that spacecraft. If it turned out to be an American who had to leave for whatever reason, then there wouldn't be an American on board the space station. It would just be Russians, and they're not trained to operate the U.S. side. And vice versa, if a Russian had to leave, there wouldn't be a Russian on board to operate their systems, and Americans aren't trained for that. So NASA has been wanting to work out a deal with the Russians where no money changes hands, but an American would go up on every Soyuz and a Russian would go up on every American ship just to protect against the possibility of one crew having to leave. That's what's happening with Mark Vandehey. He's viewed as an insurance policy for NASA in case something ever happens to the commercial crew program, you know, a launch delay, a lengthy launch delay, or someone has to come home early, that we'd have an American on board. Problem is NASA doesn't have the legal authority to buy any more seats. Uh, that takes an act of Congress to make that happen, and, and that's, that's not in place anymore. So NASA's worked out a deal with a Houston-based company called Axiom. They basically paid the Russians for the seat. Axiom is giving that seat to Mark Vandey, and in return, NASA's going to give Axiom a seat on a future commercial ship launched by the United States to carry one of their people up to the space station. So... <laughs> like I said, it's a little bit convoluted. It's definitely unusual. Yeah, very, very. I mean, this is like if I want to go to a Phillies game, and instead of just calling the Phillies, I call StubHub <laughs> or some other third party. The deal to get Mark back into space was so last minute, he found out when a friend of his wife called to say they saw the announcement on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. He said he was asleep, uh uh, I mean, he would have seen it the next day. I think NASA just wasn't going to wake him up in the middle of the night. But, uh, but yeah, you know, it was, it was, he, but he, I mean, I, this, this has been in the process for, for weeks, if not months. So, I mean, I think he knew that, you know, that's what NASA wanted to do and he was probably going to fly. It's just he didn't find out officially until he got woken up in the middle of the night. Okay, but this is how bizarre this is getting. The Russians want to make a movie on the International Space Station, yep. and they want to send a film right. director and an actress up to the space station to make that movie. And if they do that, then getting those people back to Earth in six months leaves no way for Mark to come home for a year. Now, he says he's good with that, but it's still kind of strange. Well, it is. You know, uh, there's actually a lot that's going into this. So you're right. He doesn't have a ride home right now. 
and and since he's launching on a Soyuz, he's going to come down on a Soyuz sooner or later. You can't just hop on board the American ship. Doesn't work that way. Uh, but you're right. The Russians plan to launch a director and an actress uh, up to the station when he would normally come home in the fall. And so there's no seat for him on that Soyuz. And if all that plays out, then, yeah, he'll be up there for a year or so before he comes home. Uh, and, and, you know, we had a briefing with him last week and earlier this week, I should say, and he says he's totally good with that. He's looking forward to it. Um, yeah, I don't know if it was me on board that little space station for a full year. It'd be a little tough. But uh, the astronauts seem to, uh, or at least some astronauts, let me put it that way, some astronauts like the long duration flights. Some don't. He clearly is someone who does. But now, here's the thing about this. The Russians are talking about making a movie. Well, you know, Tom Cruise, there's a lot of speculation uh, that Tom Cruise and a director or someone associated with the film is going to eventually fly to the station on a commercial spacecraft, a non-NASA mission uh, that NASA is now making available since they have this arrangement with SpaceX and with Boeing. Uh, those companies are free to launch their own crews. And as a matter of fact, Axiom, that company we talked about a moment ago, they're launching a four-person crew to the space station early next year. Um and SpaceX has worked out another deal with, with other people that are going to be flying commercially. So, you know, it looks like there's going to be a movie filmed up there one way or the other. And in this case, the Russians are trying to, I guess, beat Tom Cruise to the punch. Yeah, well, maybe Tom Cruise can get up there first and remake The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, but in outer space. When we talk about Axiom taking a four-person, you said a four-person crew to the space station. Is that what we're talking about, or are we talking about kind of final frontier joyrides for the very, very wealthy? Um, you know, it works two different ways. The four people that are going up on the Axiom flight, the, the commander of that flight works for Axiom, but he's a former astronaut. He's been to the space station. Uh, Michael Lopez Alegria, a very accomplished astronaut. And the guy who runs Axiom is the former director of the space station program at NASA. So these are people that have been around the block a few times, and they know what they're doing. That flight, uh, they are going to go to the space station. Uh, they'll stay, you know, maybe a week, something like that. Uh, they, they will do some research and some things like that. But uh, SpaceX is planning a flight later uh, that's been chartered by a billionaire, and he's, uh, he's given a seat to a, a, a medical support personnel at St. Jude Hospital in Memphis, and they're auctioning off the other two seats. That doesn't go to the space station. It simply launches, orbits the Earth for a couple of days, and comes home. I don't know that I'd call it a joyride, but it's clearly a, a much more tourist-slash-type you know, adventure uh, than going to the space station where there's lots of NASA rules and you know things you have to agree to, even if it's a commercial flight. Uh, but that mission is purely commercial, uh, and they plan to do more of those down the road. You know, that's That's part of the the promise of these new commercial spacecraft owned by SpaceX and Boeing. In the old days, NASA owned the spacecraft. These, these commercial things are owned by the companies. You know, NASA pays for rides for its astronauts, but the companies are free to launch anyone they want, you know, as long as the FAA agrees it's a safe thing to do and, and, and all of that. So I think we're going to see a lot more of this down the road. And, you know, the companies hope that if it happens enough, that prices eventually will go down enough to where, you might not have to be a you know a gazillionaire to fly, but uh, it's hard for me to see it ever getting really <laughs> inexpensive to the point where I could go buy a ticket. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out over the next several years. Yeah, absolutely, especially considering the history here, because back on the on the shuttle flights, we had one 
sort of tourist. He was United States Senator Jake Garn going up there. And uh, but then, of course, we had the tragedy with a teacher in space. And of course, that was a tragedy as her shuttle blew up. So I mean, there there are as, as back and forth as this seems to be. And most of these are at the point there. Nobody actually covers them anymore. This is still not something where you can just take for granted. Hey, I've got a lot of money. I'm going into space. No, it's not. You know, rockets are rockets. And, and no matter what kind of rocket you're launching on, you're going from zero on the launch pad to five miles per second in orbit in about eight minutes. You know, it takes you to get there. So it's a it is a it's a dangerous thing to do, you know, from a daily risk perspective. Uh, that said, you know, SpaceX has launched, uh, you know, 110 Falcon 9s at this point, something like that. They've had one failure in flight, and that was years ago. Uh, Boeing is launching on the Atlas V rocket built by United Launch Alliance. That's not ever, ever had a failure. Um, so it's certainly safer, I think, than it has ever been. But that doesn't mean that it's something you or I might consider safe to to jump on board. So it's uh, you're, you're definitely taking some risk. There's no question about that. And something we can look forward to in space is an argument between a director, a Russian director in ground control, as to whether the movie is to go direct to streaming or actually shown in a movie theater somewhere. I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, that's going to be something. We don't have many details about that. I know. Bill Harwood is CBS News space consultant. Bill, I thank you for your expertise in this very different future of space travel. Thank you. Sure thing. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors, like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream, are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings, or the midnight munchies, yeah. You know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, then you know and love the thrill of the hunt. But are you getting the thrill of the best deals? Rakuten shoppers do. They get the brands they love with the most savings and cash back, and you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores, like Urban Outfitters, Fenty Beauty, and Expedia, and even stack sales on top of cash back. It's easy to use, and you get your cash back through PayPal or check. The idea is simple. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you you as cashback. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The story of the January 6th Capitol riot advanced with more arrests and an investigation bigger than anything many people imagined. Jeff Pegues is CBS News Chief Justice and Homeland Security correspondent who is covering this. And Jeff, let's start with the two arrests and the attack on Capitol Police Officer Brian Sicknick. Just what are they charged with at this point? Uh, they are facing the kind of charges that will... 
laying them behind bars for many years, potentially, if they are convicted. You know, this is one of those cases, Ed, as I was reading the court papers, it was really remarkable how the investigators laid out their case against these two men. They've been identified as George Tanyos and Julian Cater. Um, and it, it was almost a minute-to-minute narrative of what they were doing, including when they were uh, discussing how to use or when to use this chemical irritant that we've identified as this bear spray that we saw some of the uh, some of the people in the mob spraying at officers. And so investigators have a pretty strong case, Gil. And, and the other thing is that, it, again, in this case, as we've seen in many of the other cases, is that it is a tip uh, sent to FBI investigators that led to the arrest of these two men. Investigators are getting so many tips, so much help from people across the country uh, trying to track down the people who were involved in this insurrection. And I want to get back to Officer Sicknick for a second. Pepper spray, bear spray, it's rarely fatal unless somebody has an underlying medical condition like asthma. One would think an autopsy would have decided this by now or whether there was some blunt force trauma to Officer Sicknick caused by falling, being pushed. We don't have that so far in this case. And it's, what, 10 weeks now? They are, and that's a really good question. Um, they are waiting for the full autopsy results. Um, and, and once they get them, it is possible that the charges that these two men are facing, uh, there could be a superseding indictment where uh, they face more severe charges, possibly murder. It sounds like... You know, you talk to some former U.S. attorneys, and, and that might be a, a tough case to make. But as I was uh, telling you about these uh, court papers, they show um, the two suspects in close proximity to three officers, including Officer Sicknick. And you see this substance being sprayed in the images, and then you see the officers wiping their eyes and covering their faces, and then retreating from this this line of uh, uh, this line that they had set to keep the the crowd back. So they had to receive, uh, retreat and cover their eyes, cover their faces. They were clearly in distress. So. You know, it, it seems to me, and I think investigators, the reason why they made the arrest, they feel like they have a, a pretty strong case. The question is, will the autopsy results reveal something that strengthens their case? And as I said, uh, the autopsy results were still, and, and law enforcement is still waiting for a, uh, the completion of those results. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how this may change the focus of American law enforcement from the 60s. A lot of federal investigations were about groups associated with the left, like the Weathermen, much of it since 9-11, directed at religious radicals. This is moving the needle yet again. Yeah, you know, it is. And it is remarkable how there's been this pivot to making domestic violent extremists the focus of law enforcement in this country. And I say that because over the last... I don't know, five, seven years, even including the Obama administration into the Trump administration, there were a lot of people who were critical of the government for not focusing enough on domestic terrorist activity. Uh, and because of this event, you've seen this pivot. Pivot Now, 
Uh, this week, we've seen the Office of the Director of National Intelligence release and uh, declassify a document talking about domestic violence, extremism, and how it poses a heightened threat in the U.S. in 2021. And so the focus by law enforcement in this country has clearly shifted. And then you have the new attorney general who has made it his one of his, if not the top priority, uh, as he comes into office. And so there has been a, a real shift. And frankly, it is something that is probably long overdue, given what we saw uh, that day, not only from individuals who breached the, the Capitol, but also from these militias. You know, and in a lot of cases, these are people who have bought into conspiracy theories. Um, and that is fueling some of this violence. So it is a very... It's, it's a dangerous situation. Law enforcement across this country now knows it uh, because of what happened on January 6th. Jeff, besides thanking you for this story, I want to thank you for agreeing to fill in for me the next few weeks while I go off and have some long delays by COVID surgery. I know the broadcast will be in the best of hands. Hopefully I will be, too. Jeff Begays is CBS News Chief Justice and Homeland Security Correspondent and for a while, your correspondent on America Changed Forever, which continues in a moment from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The Oscar nominations are out, and usually the story would be, well, who are they and who got snubbed? But this year, between closed movie theaters and streaming, there's also the question, does anybody care? Anne Hornaday does. She is chief film critic for The Washington Post. And and let me start with that, and I did not mean that in a snarky way. The, the problem is hardly anyone went to actual theaters, which means even action films were seen at home on 120th their intended size. And what with all the streaming services, I think a lot of us aren't even sure what a TV show is and what a movie is, or whether this is something that some arcane committee made up of Oscar and Emmy people figure out. I totally take your point, Gil. And I actually, I think that um, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey put it beautifully. At the Golden Globes, we give out awards for movies and TV. But, I mean, it's hard to tell them apart this year because movie theaters were closed. So you may be confused which nominees count as movies and which are considered TV. Now, TV is the one that I watch five hours straight, but a movie is the one that I don't turn on because it's two hours. I don't want to be in front of my TV for two hours. I want to be in front of the TV for one hour, five times. I, I totally take your point that it's just become this kind of indistinguishable blur of visual storytelling that we're all in for the last year. Yeah, and that's a wonderful thing. But you, you brought up the Golden Globes, record low ratings, Grammys, record low ratings. And there's no reason to believe the Oscars won't suffer the same fate. And some of it is with so many of these films only available to Americans on paid streaming services, nobody able to afford all of them. It's more likely than ever that most people will not have seen any more than a few of the nominated films and performances. Yep, you're exactly right. Yeah, I mean, it's just um, now, but I will say the good news, <laughs> Mrs. Lincoln, I mean, I know that that all sounds dire and it. I don't want to understate it, but by the, you know the one the, the the reason why I will always sort of defend the Oscars as silly and self indulgent as they can be is that they do often um, bring light to some wonderful movies um, that people might not have known about had they not been um, made aware of them on the Oscars and this year's batch is actually there's a lot of good stuff so even if people didn't see them whether in theaters or on streaming um, you know it, it these are all 
movies that are worth catching up with once they do, if they're not on streaming and once they do make it to, you know, video on demand or cable or whatever. Um, so I can't really quibble with the quality of the work that was uh, nominated, even though, yeah, everybody's in such a, that we're all in our own rabbit hole. So if this, if these movies didn't happen to be in your rabbit hole, then right, you wouldn't have seen them. That's right. And boy, speaking of rabbit hole, I, I intended to binge Bugs Bunny cartoons tomorrow. But let's get to some things and, and help people get through this. And let's start with best film. We've got The Father, Judas and the Black Messiah, Mank, Minari, Nomadland, Promising Young Woman, Sound of Metal, and The Trial of Chicago 7. So if out of these, as good as they may all be, you could point us to two to get us started, what would they be? Well, of course, you know me. I'm probably not going to stop at two. My favorite, my the one, my going away favorite is Nomadland. It's just this sprawling contemporary movie um, about modern day internal migrant workers, basically. These are people mostly in middle age and, and almost old age who take to the road to follow seasonal work in the American West. And um, the film mixes nonfiction, you know, real life people who are pursuing that lifestyle or who are forced to pursue that lifestyle. And then the great Francis McDormand is sort of a fictional character um, who threads us through the story. It's just, it's beautifully filmed. It's absolutely exquisitely acted by McDormand. I just loved it. But two um, that I'm, I'm actually a huge fan of almost all these movies. Um, but I do want to lift up sound of metal. This is a really terrific little film um, on Amazon starring Riz Ahmed, who was nominated this year as a rock and roll drummer who finds that he's going deaf. And it's just such a creative and um, compassionate view of somebody grappling with that change in their life completely from their point of view. So the sound design goes in and out in terms of, you know, what he can hear and what he can't hear. There are lots of um, you know, there's a lot of American sign language and uh, in the film, it's just it's just a wonderful movie. And then The Father with Anthony Hopkins. I strongly recommend that as well. Terrific uh, turn by him. So there's there's a lot to choose from here. You know, you mentioned Nomadland. It's directed by one of two women. First time two women have been nominated for Best Director, Chloe Zhao. And then you've got a fascinating story in Emerald Fennell, who is nominated for Promising Young Woman. This was an actress, still young, known for a British soap opera called The Midwife, and then as Camilla on the Crown, and then became the showrunner for Killing Eve, and now writes and gets Oscar nominated for directing her first movie. I mean, this is this is an amazing career jump in the last couple of years. It's incredible. And I, I, she is obviously very gifted, very bright. And this is an interesting movie, and I was—I don't want to spoil it. I, but just if, if people have seen it, they'll know what I mean. I was right with it up until the very end. I wasn't crazy about the ending, but with that tantalizing little uh, taste, I'll leave you. But it's very smart. This is a stinging social satire about um, rape culture, basically sexism, misogyny, and rape culture. And Car the British actress Carrie Mulligan plays this uh, very um, pretty feminine central character who is up to something and we're not exactly sure what it is but it has to do with going out at bars at night and and picking up men and then uh her 
agenda becomes clear as the movie goes. I don't want to give anything away. It becomes clear as the movie goes on and her motivations become clear. And it's all been sort of designed with these candy color palettes and it's all very poppy and pretty and she's blonde and pretty. And then that sort of dark undercurrent comes to the, to the service. And I thought that was all very well calibrated. It will be very familiar to people who know Killing Eve. It's got that same mix of those sort of feminine tropes with a very serious dark underside and, and social commentary um, that, that undergirds it. It's fascinating. It's really, really interesting, very promising, no pun intended, promising first film. Okay, we only have a minute left, so let's just do best actor, best actress. Don't even have time to name them. Who do you like in each category? Um, oh, boy, these are really competitive this year. Oh, who do I want? Oh, I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick, I'm going to pick Frances McDormand for best actress and in best actor... Ooh, that's another really, that's a tough one. Um, it's going to have to be, oh, you're putting me on the spot. I'm going to go with, 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 I'm going to go with Riz Ahmed for Best Actor. Who you mentioned from Sound of Metal. I just wonder, as a final thing, Chadwick Boseman is nominated for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Of course, he sadly passed away at 40, which is just insane. And I wonder, since this will be the last time he can be nominated for anything, I just wonder if the emotion is going to carry the day for him. You know what? You're prob- you're, and, and he has already gotten you know, these posthumous awards, so that you're, you could be very well right, um, Gil. And it, you know, it's been so moving to see these testimonials to him. I mean, his... His wife's speech at the Golden Globes is one of, to me, the high point of that ceremony. Um, so, listen, I wouldn't be, I mean, again, you know, when I look at all these lineups, I don't think I'll be mad about anything. <laughs> you know, they're all, they're all deserving. I mean, I hate to be, the, the one movie I wasn't, probably the one I wasn't completely crazy about was Mank. I think that might be the one that I'm not. I wouldn't be as enthusiastic about um, compared to the others. Well, we've got a long list of things to see. Almost all of these movies are available on streaming. And Ann Hornaday is the chief film critic for The Washington Post. And thank you so much. Thank you, Gil. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Twitter has been purging accounts associated with QAnon. CBS News Chief Investigative Correspondent Catherine Herridge has more on that. 
After rioters pushed their way into the Capitol on January 6th to violently block the Electoral College certification, Twitter now tells CBS News the social media platform purged more than 150,000 accounts associated with QAnon. That's double the number previously reported. There are folks on one side who say that the platforms are censoring and taking down free speech, and there are others who say that the platforms aren't doing enough. Alexandra Givens leads the Center for Democracy and Technology that promotes laws and policy supporting free speech. Deciding to remove someone from a social media account does have significant impact on their ability to find other people, to express their views and to communicate. You're not going on camera because you have significant security concerns. That's that's correct. Senior Twitter officials tracking the QAnon conspiracy theory agreed to speak with CBS News on the condition their identities were protected. Do you both receive threats? On a According to these officials, most of the shuttered accounts belong to Americans, not so-called bots, computer software designed to spread misinformation. Twitter told us they used machine learning and some human review to determine the accounts that violated their coordinated harmful activity policy. After the riots, suspended users were notified and allowed to appeal. The officials said the success rate of appeals was near zero, and they have high confidence in their decisions. Twitter officials said many of the same accounts suspended were first monitored. As early as last July, Twitter began lowering the profile of these accounts based on QAnon content posted, who they interacted with, as well as other online behaviors. It's one of the tools that platforms are increasingly thinking about as they try to balance this really hard trade-off between the fear of silencing speech, but also mitigating some of the concerns about it. When does mitigating violence uh, or mitigating speech become censorship? It's a hard balance to strike. Should Twitter have done more and done it sooner? There are a lot of disinformation experts who think that the signs were on the wall and action should have been taken sooner. I think you can imagine that Twitter was struggling with the gravity of the situation. Twitter used similar tools against al-Qaeda and ISIS to monitor and limit their terrorist propaganda. Asked if they used the same strategy last summer against Antifa supporters as riots erupted in Seattle and Portland, Twitter said their approach was different. When the ideology leads someone to... Pointing to the FBI director's congressional testimony that Antifa is an ideology, not an organization. Twitter officials say they want users to have a, quote, path back to healthy behavior, and their approach is focused on de-radicalization and rehabilitation. Twitter chief Jack Dorsey recently told investors users are increasingly skeptical of his platform. We agree many people don't trust us. Never has this been more pronounced than the last few years. This isn't just about our actions to promote healthy conversation. It goes broader and deeper. That last voice Twitter founder Jack Dorsey. This has been America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull. I'm Gil Gross. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. 
I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.